This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationlim.org. So Father, today we come before you. And we do so on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. We do so on the basis, not of our righteousness, but of a righteousness that is far higher than ours. Father, we bring a sacrifice, the sacrifice of our praise, the sacrifice of our offerings, the sacrifice of just being here. Father, we are willing to be with you, to join with the saints in worship of you. And Father, this is our delight. It's our pleasure. Now, Father, we ask that you would grant us great grace, great wisdom, great insight. Father, we ask that you would speak to each of our hearts. You said that your sheep know the voice of the good shepherd. And so, Father, we ask that you would allow us to hear that voice today, the voice of the good shepherd. Father, speak through my lips. Father, minister to men's hearts, convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Father, we thank you that you are the one just and true God. You are the just judge. And to you we look today. In Jesus' awesome name we pray. Amen. Grab a few people, give them a hug, a handshake, a kiss, or an elbow tap, whatever you feel comfortable with. God bless you. Amen. Hallelujah. I love that song. Uh, that we're singing there. Uh, it's very appropriate for the message today. I will not give that which cost me nothing. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, there's nothing worse than getting a gift from somebody and you know that it was one of those gifts that they got that they didn't like and they just passed on. How many of you have ever had one of those? Around this time of year, many people celebrate in a way that, you know, uh, I used to get soap on a rope when I was uh, younger, and that was something that, you know, if we were out invited to dinner to somebody's house, they would probably get that re-gifted to them, you know, because I just couldn't live without a soap on a rope. But it didn't cost me anything, and the guest or the person I gave it to knew it didn't cost me anything either, I'm sure. Uh, I learned soon enough that that's probably not the way to do things. If you're going to bless people, if you want to give something to somebody, it's going to cost you. And uh, God knew that, and God knows that. And uh, so today, I have been wrestling about the title of this message. I didn't know which way to go. Uh, I almost feel like I have the wrong title now after hearing this song, but uh, I'm going to go with it anyway. I call it The Spoils of War. The Spoils of War. And then I ask a question, what are they for? And so I would, I would appeal to you, and I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the second book of Kings, the second book of Kings. We're going to look in the Old Testament, and then I want to try to parallel something in the New Testament. But in the second book of Kings, the sixth chapter, chapter six, we see a story here. Uh, it's very familiar to all of you. And it says, and it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver. I'm not sure if that was an actual ass's head or if it was speaking about some of the 
leaders of the day. An ass's head was sold for four score pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. You know, some people look at the world today and they feel like we're almost in a similar situation, that it's just getting ridiculous. Shortages. Uh, you know, that we've shut the world down and it's broken all the supply lines and, and you know, there, there's hardship around the world. Even the Western worlds are facing great hardships. All they need is a drought on top of it, like here. And as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, he, there cried out a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help thee, when shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? And the king said to her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. She has hidden her son. It came to pass when the king heard the words of this woman that he rent his clothes and he passed by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so and more to me also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. Well, let, me, let, me, let me explain something to you. The king is railing against Elisha, the son of Shaphat, because of his own sinfulness. The foolishness of the king, the foolishness of the people, and a drought, but it's led them to eating their own children, devouring their own children. Yeah, I tell you, we're not far from that in this country. Well, maybe not physically eating our children, but we're devouring them on an altar of ridiculousness. All we need is a few more laws to constrain and control people. To where they can do nothing except somebody in an ivory tower or lifts their finger to do so. And the king now is angry at the man of God. The man of God, of course, had declared that there will be no rain for three years. Well, they didn't know how long. He just said there will be no rain because of the wickedness of the people. And let me tell you something. There's a juxtaposition taking place in the world today. And you do not want to mess with true men of God today. I'm going to warn you. So he makes this threat. But I want you to know what Elisha's doing. Elisha was sitting in his house with the elders. And the king sent a man from before him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet soon behind him. And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? Well, I'll tell you, things get complicated in life. 
things got very complicated in Samaria. God only wants us to turn to him. God is a God of mercy. God desires mercy. He desires mercy for our nation. But we must turn to him. It goes on in 2 Kings chapter 7, and the plight of this situation is very dire. And in, in, in the third, chap, third verse of the seventh chapter, it says, and there were four leprous men at the entering end of the gate. And they said to each other, why do we sit here until we die? If we say we shall enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here alone, well, then we're going to also die. Now, therefore, come, let us fall into the hands of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Well, I'll tell you, it's amazing how quickly people can fall into despair. Such despair. The people of the city, if you, if you read this story, I mean, they're, they're selling an ass's head and dove's dung to eat. They're eating each other's children. The, these lepers don't know where to turn. And they say, hey, listen, we're going to die anyway. Let's just go ahead and take our chances. There's such despair. They saw no way through the trial. They didn't believe God's word. They don't believe in God. These, none of these people believe God. They don't believe his word. They don't believe the word of his prophet. They don't believe God's word could save them. So they're ready to surrender themselves to their enemies. Isn't that the way of man? When they arrived in the Syrian camp, everything was deathly still. Can you, you imagine? They searched every tent of the Syrians and everyone was gone. Second Kings chapter 7 verse 6 says, and For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses and even a noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents. They left their horses. They left their asses. Even the camp as it was. And they fled for their lives. Then verse 8 says, And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and they did eat and they did drink. And they carried thence silver and gold and raiment. And they went and they hid it. And then they came again and entered into another tent. And they carried thence also away, and they went and hid the gold and the silver and the raiment. Amazing thing happens. These lepers realize something. They realize that the enemy had been routed. The enemy, the enemy had been somehow had fled. They, 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 there was strewn everywhere the marks of people in panic, in flight, what do they do? They go through the camp eating and drinking and hiding treasures. The treasures that God had provided. You know, when I read through the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says. He says in, second, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, he says, charge those that are rich 
charge those that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in the uncertainty of their riches, but that they trust in the living God who gives us all things richly to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may hold on to eternal life. Again, Paul, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, who is a very wealthy church, and he says, when I come, he says, uh, in chapter 16, verse 2, he says, on the first day of the week, let every one of you lay up in store as God has prospered him, so that when I come, no offerings are being taken. He says, I don't want to have offerings. He says, I don't want to come and take offerings. He says, when I come, I already have it prepared. He says, you guys, be generous. These, these lepers are not being generous, by the way. These lepers are like many rich people. They think that their trust is going to be in what they can get, bury, keep. Second Kings chapter 7 Verse 9 goes on to say, and then they said to each other, we do not do well. We do not do well. These guys had some sense. They came to their senses. They said, this day is a day of good tidings. And if we hold our peace, if we tarry until the morning light, some mischief may come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. So they came and they called unto the porter of the city and they told him, saying, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied, and asses tied, and the tents as they were. See, I think we all desire to see the Lord turn our situations around. And he wants to. The Lord turned this situation around, the whole situation and had given resources to restore and to refresh his people. It was a tremendous victory. But it wasn't meant to touch only a few people. These blessings were meant to be shared. Meant to be shared with everybody. Those who are the Lord's people, those of us that are his people, are promised glorious victory over our enemies. But God's work on our behalf isn't meant to stop with us. When God gives you a victory, it doesn't just stop with you. Oh, I'm blessed. No, we are part of a body. We are part of one another. God wants us to know I'm going to make you more than an overcomer. I'm going to work out even greater purpose for your life and greater purpose for you in the kingdom and for my kingdom. God intends us to bring the blessings and the blessing of our lives to countless people that are under the shadow of despair, under the shadow of death. He says, bring them good news. Let me tell you something. Good news isn't just preaching. Good news is not just patting someone on the back and saying, be clothed and be fed. I think of the story of David. I, I talked about this last week. I, I wasn't going to include this, but I, I just feel compelled to a little bit. I'll just touch the highlights. David had 600 men, 
And they began to pursue at Ziklag. You remember at Ziklag? They began to pursue their enemy, the, Phil- the, the Philistines who had, or the Amalekites that had raided, their, had raided Ziklag, taken their wives, taken all their goods, taken everything, and burned the city. Of course, I, I, I preached about God and told David, and David encouraged himself in the Lord, and he said, pursue, and they pursued. But about halfway along the journey, they get to the river, Kibber, I think it is, and, 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 and 200 of the men just can't go on. They're, they're exhausted. So 400 pursue, and there's a multitude of these soldiers. And what's happened is they've spread themselves out in a the valley. They've divided themselves. And so David's able to move in. They're drunk. They've eaten, and, and they're, they're sharing the spoils of the war. And David's able to slay them and destroy them, and 400 of them get away on camels, it says. But the rest were taken, and all the goods, not only of Ziklag, but of all the surrounding towns and cities were brought back. But there's an interesting part of that story. It says, but they came with the goods back to the 200, and the 400 that had fought the battle said, no way are we sharing with these 200. No way. They didn't come to the battle. And David said, he set a decree. He says, no, those that stayed with the luggage are just as important as those who went into battle. Not only that, David took some of those spoils and all the surrounding cities and villages and towns that were their brothers and sisters, he shared the spoils of those with them as well. See, God sets you up to share the spoils of your victories. Let, let, let me just flip to the New Testament for just a second and see if we can't see a, a parallel here. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, from his prison cell. He'd already probably been tried by Nero, or if he hadn't been tried and sentenced to death. He was just about to be. He was anticipating to be sentenced to death. We're not sure of the exact timing on this, but we know this, that it wasn't, it was in this time period that Nero, probably one of the most cruel leaders in the world ever, sentenced an innocent man to death. Paul writes this in that kind of a condition to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, he says, For I am now ready to be poured out as an offering. I'm ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. What a statement. This this idea of being poured out as an offering. You know, what, what this speaks of is, it speaks of the Old Testament drink offering. Every time there was a animal offering, Coinciding with that would be a drink offering. They would pour out a drink offering, usually a mixture, a mixture of wine, and, and it was a, an offering before the Lord. I don't know if you remember, David had three of his men, and they, they ran through a troop, and they, they went through into the city of Bethlehem, and they, they brought back a shield of water to David from the well, just because David had uttered over, under his breath, he said, oh, how I'd long for a drink. These men risked their lives into the enemy camp to bring back this, and, and David could not drink it. He poured it out as a, a drink offering. These, these pouring outs of these drink offerings are representative of your life. 
Paul says, I'm ready to be poured out. I'm ready to have my life poured out. My life. In the Old Testament, it was a picture of life being poured out. Jesus, when he took the cup, spoke of his life being poured out. In this case, Paul is speaking of his willingness to pour out his life, his willingness to be released from this life as an offering to God. I was told of a little story, a story of a little girl, her name is Liz, who was suffering from a very rare and a very serious disease. And her only chance of recovery was for her to receive a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother, who had miraculously survived the same disease and had developed the antibodies that were needed to combat the illness. Uh, the doctor had explained the situation not only to her family but to her little brother and asked the little boy if he'd be willing to give his blood to save his sister. There was a sad look in his eye and he hesitated for only a moment before he took a deep breath and said, yes, I'll do it to save her life. As the transfusion progressed, he lay in the bed next to his sister and he smiled as everyone in the room did when they saw life and color returning to the cheeks of the little girl. Then his face grew pale and he, his smile faded and he looked up at the doctor and asked him with a trembling voice, will I start to die right away? You see, being young and not fully understanding, the little boy had misunderstood what the doctor had said. He thought that he was supposed to give his life for the life of his sister and give his blood in order to save her. But in fact, he only needed to share a transfusion. I think there's something about pouring one's life out. One thing I've come to understand that there are really very few offerings that really mean anything or they're acceptable to God unless they're accompanied by the drink offering of a life poured out to God. You know, I think of all the great ministries that have changed people's lives or, or changed the world. And if, if you look at them, you'll find that someone had to pour out their life in some kind of a selfless giving of themselves, him or herself, for others, to the point that it's like a drink offering, a drink offering poured out. Paul, he's now old. He's writing this. And... Uh, in fact, in another epistle, he writes to, to I, I think, to uh, Titus, maybe Timothy, I don't know. And he says, please send a coat. Send things to keep warm. I think Paul is now probably infirm. Yet, never does he say anything negative. In fact, he gives no hint of defeat or regret in this epistle. In fact, the very words that he writes must be some of the most triumphant and victorious words ever written by a human being. He says, I have fought a good fight. Go ahead and put that up there. He continues on and he says, I have fought a good fight. Not only has he poured it, he says, not, he says, I'm ready to be poured out. He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Well, what a, Lord, may that be my testimony when I die. I fought the fight. I finished my course. I, I, I ran my race and I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. I often meditate on that. Jesus asked in the book of Luke, he said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, is he going to find faith on the earth? Is there going to be any faith on the earth? 
Will Jesus find faith when he returns? The New Testament promise to you and I is a promise to reward faithfulness. Well done, good, and faithful servant. Will we, like the Apostle Paul, be able to say that we have finished our race? Each of us has a race to run. I was struck by Ecclesiastes 9. It says, I, I returned and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither the bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, or favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. And I, I was asking the Lord, I said, what does this mean? And, and, and I felt like he said, the, the race is not to the swift, but to the faithful. He says, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's the one that keeps running. It's the one who stays in the race. It's the one who finishes his course. The battle is not to the strong because it's not a battle. It's a war, but to the persistent. It's the one who gets up every day and goes to battle. You may win a battle. You may lose a battle, but you ultimately win the war. Understanding that the enemy shows up for battle every single day. And he must be engaged every single day. You see, war is not to the strong person, but to the one who wars every single day. If you're going to keep the faith, if you're going to finish your race, you're going to have to fight the fight. One of the major aspects of a Christian life is that it is a life of conflict. It's conflict every day. Struggles and warfare are part, of the, part and parcel of the Christian life. Many Christians believe wrongly. They believe that once they're born again, their struggles are over, that life will be smooth sailing. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. God not only allows our battles, but he has a purpose for them in our lives. If it were not so, there would be no mention of spoils of war. Why would God talk to you about the spoils of a warfare if you were not to win and conquer your enemy? Spoils are plunder. Spoils are goods that are taken from the enemy, from battle, by the victor. David had a reverent attitude towards spoils. David was not calloused in any way. In fact, David honored the spoils. We see it in the decree that he set forth toward the end of his life. Where he gathered the nation's leaders together and he set up a divine order for sustaining the house of God. He says, what resources are going to be used to maintain the work of God, to maintain God's work, his holy work? And in 1 Chronicles 26, he said this, some of the spoils won in battles, they dedicated to maintain the house of the Lord. Some of you go out and do warfare and you think that it's all for you. You think, hey, I, I, I do warfare in the marketplace. I, I, I do warfare. And, and God gives your, he, the Bible says he'll teach your hands. He'll, he'll teach you how to do warfare. But you think it's all for you. No, 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 no. It's to distribute. You're only the steward of it. Some make more, some make less. Some gather more, some gather less. Remember the manna? But there's enough for everybody. God loves a generous person. 
In every military victory that David had, he took back gold and silver, brass, timber, money, two vast account, and he stockpiled them for one purpose, one purpose only in mind, to build the kingdom of God, to have resources to build the temple of God. You know, when the scripture speaks of maintaining the temple, the original Hebrew means to repair the house, to strengthen and to consolidate that which was built. These resources were meant to create and maintain the temple's splendor. But today we have to ask ourselves, where is God's temple today? It's made up of his people. You and I are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And we meet in a building. We've got to maintain this building. We've got to maintain things. But more importantly, we've got to maintain each other. God gave us each other. What does it profit me if my brother is going without when I have abundance? According to Paul, our bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost. He says, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost in which you, which is in you, which you have of God and you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Just as in ancient Israel, just as in those times when we're studying and reading, God still maintains his temple. And he does it through the spoils gained in battle. That's why our trials are meant to be more than just for survival. God never meant you just to survive. He meant you to thrive. Every battle, through every battle, God's laying aside resources. He's laying aside wealth. He's laying aside experiences for each and every one of us. Those spoils are dedicated to God and building up and maintaining his building, yes, but his body, more importantly, the body of Jesus Christ. I think there's a principle that God wants us to lay a hold of, that our Lord is interested much, much more in making us victors than in the battles we're involved in. We're supposed to emerge from battles with loads and loads of resources. I think this is what Paul was referring to in Romans 8, 37, where he said, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, you know I, think, I think of another story about a rabbi, and uh, he longed to have an encounter, and he's, praying, and he says, God, would you just let me meet Elijah? Would you let me have a, just a day with Elijah? Somehow God had requested this. Elijah comes back, and, 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 and the rabbi says, Elijah, I want to know what it's like, why you do what you do. Elijah says, I can't tell you. He says, if I did tell you, you wouldn't believe me. He says, you won't be able to understand what I do. He says, no, but I want to know. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll take you one day and I'll show you on one condition that you don't ask me anything because you will not understand. Anyway, the rabbi, a very curious man, says, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And they go, and the first place they go to is a very wealthy synagogue. It's late in the afternoon and they get there and the, they go to the very wealthy, wealthy synagogue. At the end of the service, after Elijah and this rabbi had spoken and were there, they asked the president of the synagogue, is there a place for us to stay? And he asked the congregation there if there's anybody from their wealthy homes that would take these two in. 
None of those wealthy men would take these two in. So they had to stay in the synagogue. The rabbi was shocked at how ill-treated the prophet had been treated. The next morning when they woke up, they didn't feed them. They did nothing. And Elijah just turned to the president and said, may you, and to, and to the elders, he says, may you have many presidents and went on his way. The rabbi shocked. He says, how could you bless them when they were so mistreating of you? He didn't answer. The next thing, they go to a farmer's house. And because they hadn't eaten, they go to this farmer's house and the farmer takes them in and feeds him his very last and his very best. Then he prays a peculiar prayer as they leave. He says, may your cow die. <laughs> the rabbi can hardly believe the words that are coming out of his ears. What you, how could you say that to this man who has nothing and his only cow you cursed and you said, may it die? They went on a little bit further and they got to a very, very rich man's house. And the rich man said, I'll provide you lodging in a plate of food if you build my wall. So they went out and without complaint, Elijah built the wall and blessed the man. Now, this rabbi is shocked. Finally, they go to a very, very modest, almost poor synagogue and are very well treated. They're brought in, they're fed, and they're given the night's rest. And the rabbi prays a prayer. May you have one president. Anyway, the, the rabbi just couldn't take it. They couldn't, he couldn't just, he, he says, Elijah, speak to me now because I, I know that you're going to leave if you do, but I, I need to know what's going on. Elijah just said, he said, how, how, the, the, the rabbi asked, how could you bless the first synagogue? He says, I prayed that they would have many presidents, knowing that Many presidents will cause confusion in their ranks. Many leaders is not good in a synagogue. Oh. He says, but then how could you pray to have the farmer's cow die? He said, because God told me that his wife was going to die. And I asked if he would take the cow instead. Well, then... How could you be so humble as to build the rich man's wall? He says, because had he done it, he would have found the treasure that was buried under the rubble. Well, then, what about the last synagogue where you said, may they have one president? He said, because with one strong and good leader, there'll be peace in that synagogue. You see, I know that the story is a little, little bit lengthy, but Sometimes our battles, sometimes the wars that we fight, we don't get the answer we think we're supposed to get. But they're God's answer. God knows, and he's giving you a wealth. Some of you gained a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of insight. Some of you got set up for your future when you thought you had been defeated, when you thought you had lost, when you thought that somebody had cheated you. In fact, it was just God readjusting things. 
You see, the, the, the principle of supply through battle is found throughout the whole word of God. God's house remains vibrant. It remains alive because his people have emerged from every conflict, not just victorious, but rich, rich in resources. And if we're willing to use those resources, the wisdom and the knowledge and the physical resources, and by the way, if he hadn't given you the victory, you could have just as easily been spoiled as to spoil your enemy. But if we'll use these things to both support physically and spiritually the temple of God, there's much blessing in that. Paul goes on to say, henceforth, finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I love his attitude. He says, I'm ready to be poured out as an offering. I fought the fight. I've run my race. This is it. And there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I looked up that word crown, and in this instance, it's not a royal diadem. There's two words translated as crown in the New Testament. One is diadem, and you all know that one. It's a, a royal mark of crownship or of kingship. It's a crown. And uh, the book of Revelations declares that when Jesus comes in his appearing, on his head are many crowns, many diadems. Because he is the king of all kings and he is the Lord of all lords, he'll be willing and we should lay all of our crowns at his feet because he is the king of us all. But this crown that it's speaking of here is a laurel wreath. It is in reference to the Olympics, Olympic games of those days. And it was a sprig of laurel that was placed on the head of one who had won a contest. Any contest that had been victorious and they would get a laurel wreath around their head. It corresponds to the gold medal of our modern Olympic day, games. What Paul is really saying is this. He's I've, I've won my race, and I wait expectantly for my gold medal. And then he says this, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. Now, I love this verse because notice what Paul emphasizes. The Lord, the righteous judge. See, sometimes we get so caught up in this world, we forget that there's a righteous judge. The reason for this is that Paul had either just been tried or was just about to be tried in front of the most notorious of evil judges in the world. Could make no headway with Nero. Nero was pig-headed. Nero was a despot. And Nero hated Christians. Nero hated Paul. He was unjust. And gave Paul an unjust sentence. But Paul's saying this. Nero's words are not the last words. There's one more judgment. And that judgment will be for a totally, will be before a totally righteous judge. And his sentence will be totally righteous. And totally just. The righteous judge shall judge me at that day. And then he adds this, and not only me, but also all of them that love his appearing. Boy, I tell you what, there's something about those of us that love and wait for and expectant, longing for the appearing. I think the King James has longed for his appearing. That word agape, or a, a, a love is agapeo, agape, love. It means intense love, the love of God, the love for God. It means that we're in love with his coming. 
we're in love with his appearing. Paul is recognizing that God Almighty himself acknowledges a special group of believers. They're marked by the fact that they're in love with the appearing of Jesus. And he says, for those special believers, God has a special honor, a crown, a crown of righteousness. Oh, it's not going to be given to all believers, but those who in this life have passionately loved the appearing of our Lord Jesus, who are longing for his appearing. I want to ask you a question today. Do you qualify for this special honor? Do you long for his appearing? Or are you afraid of the unrighteous judges? Are you one of those who have loved or longed for his appearing? Are you willing to be poured out for Christ? Are you willing to fight the good fight of faith? Are you willing to be generous with the spoils of war in this life? Do you long for this world and this life? Do you long for what this world can do for you? Or are you longing for his appearing? This morning, my purpose was just to create a space for us to think. To ask ourselves, what do I do? Can I, and am I willing to pour out my life? Fight the fight. Run the race. Receive a crown. Do I love his appearing? To me, that's the very crux, the very heart of Christianity. For those of you that are listening, we're about to sign off with you. But I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to sit with your family. Talk about what is it that God would have us do? How do we live in these end times? How do we live in this season? Am I willing to die for Christ? Am I willing to be poured out? Will I have finished the race that God placed in front of me? If you need someone to talk to, there's a phone number on that screen right now. Call it. Call it. On the other end of that line, there is somebody there. It may not be a pastor at this time, but they can get you to one. There is a counselor there. There's somebody that can help you. There's somebody for sure that can pray with you. But I'm going to encourage you to reach out. Don't, don't fight these battles alone. The spoils are for all of us. We love you. We'll see you again next week. God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.